This is Dana McClendon, and this is Ready for Trial. This is part two of a two-part episode. My guest is Kevin Sharp. Kevin and I were classmates at Vanderbilt Law School, and Kevin went on to become a federal judge appointed by President Obama. As we discussed in part one, he resigned that seat after six years because he could no longer in good conscience do what the job required of him. So he quit the job and uh, became uh, active in uh, criminal justice reform. Those efforts led him ultimately back to the White House, into the Oval Office with President Trump on uh, some clemency matters. All that's in part one. If you didn't listen to part one, please go back and listen to part one because as interesting as this part of the interview is, part one is sort of the necessary groundwork for this episode. I really struggled with how to introduce this story. Um, so I'll just, I guess I'll just speak to you from my heart. Uh, I am, uh, I guess at the end of the day, if I had to describe myself, I am pro-liberty. I am pro-freedom. I've spent the better part of three decades as a lawyer uh, doing a lot of criminal defense work. So I really sincerely want the system, as it were, to work for everyone. And when it doesn't, it undermines the confidence that everyone can have in the system. And when the confidence of the general public in the system is eroded, we have lawlessness and chaos. And that is where we are in August of 2020 in this country. Erosion is not a sudden thing. Erosion is a process, and that process is ongoing. What you are about to hear is the story of Leonard Peltier. I'm going to let Kevin tell it, but I want to remind you, as you listen to Kevin tell the story of Leonard Peltier, Kevin Sharp was a federal judge. He is not some wackadoodle conspiracy theorist who crawled out of his mother's basement with a tinfoil hat on his head. This is a guy who deserves to be taken seriously. So without further ado, I give you Kevin Sharp telling the story of Leonard Peltier. Is this where we get to Leonard? It is where we get to Leonard. Okay. So, all right, listeners, push pause, go get a drink, <laughs> because what you are about to hear, I didn't believe it, uh, even when my friend Kevin is telling me, um, and I just want to take this moment to remind you that... Uh, the story you're about to hear is going to be told to you by a man who served in the United States Navy honorably uh, and then um, ascended through the ranks of the, the law school and the practice of law and so on and became a federal judge who became uh, disillusioned, uh, my word, not yours, disillusioned with the sentencing and, and the process um, and uh, and then gets a package, right? Right. That's right. All right. You take it from there. So... The, the story of my uh, time in the Oval Office with Kardashian becomes a national story. And I end up in the paper and there are photographs around. And I start getting lots of mail from prisons, from relatives of prisoners and their letters. And I'll just say, Judge Sharp, I saw, you know, President Trump, or you met with, you know, Trump and Kim Kardashian. I didn't do it. Take my case. And they're stacking up. There are so many of them, and I, it's just impossible. And they're not telling me anything, and or, or there there is no case to take. And then one day, one of the, a, a package comes in, and it's in a big Manila envelope, and 
it feels different. And I initially say, throw it over there with the others. What I would do is look at those at the end of every week and respond back when I could. And I said, put that in the pile. We'll look at it next week. And then I went, uh, you know what? Why don't you throw me that one? It feels different, something about it. And I took it to my office and I sat down at the desk and I opened this package chocked full of information. And I see a trial transcript in there. I see. Uh, now, so that because it's important, I know you've told me the overview of this story, but I want to make clear that as people start to hear this, this was a couple of years ago, right? This years ago. It was right after. So I'm in 2018 is is when I meet with the president. So it's right after that, that okay. our, the letters start coming. So the me. point of me interrupting you to ask that question is you are not some Johnny come lately dilettante with a, with a new cause celeb uh, on the story we're about to tell. You have been immersed in it for right. two years. Yeah. So what, in, when, what ends up happening is I go package, it's trial transcripts, it's articles, it's FBI documents. It is, um, uh, it's prison files is all this information. And I end up rather than just kind of flipping through it, spending my entire day just reading this and, and, you know, rubbing my head, rubbing my face, thinking the same thing that you just said, this cannot be true. What I, what I have received in the mail is a packet from a lawyer in Texas who said, I saw the article with you at the white house. Please review the case of the United States versus Leonard Peltier. And I, I had this vague recollection as I'm reading through it, um, thinking, I, I think I heard of this, but, but maybe not. It's, it's the story of the American Indian movement. Um, and but we're talking now, how old are you, Kevin? I'm 57. So, okay. So I'm 52. So the events that lead to this U S versus Peltier occur when we're children. Right. Okay. We're, right. So in 19, uh, in the early seventies, the American Indian movement is formed and it's a group that is protesting the treatment of the United States government of, of the American Indians by the United States government and their broken treaties. And they will, over there protesting, will take over Alcatraz. They will take over other um, previously uh, held Indians that now the federal government has taken from them. Uh, there, was a pro- there was a protest at Mount Rushmore. There was a protest at Mount Rushmore. There was a big protest in 1983 at Wounded Knee. Yeah, they took over the whole town for like 75 or 80 days or something. Yeah, it would, uh, ended up being, I think, about 71, 72 days there was a siege. It will sound, you know, uh, a lot like uh, stories of Waco and some of these others. There was this siege, and it becomes uh, dangerous. Um, eventually, uh, a deal is struck to stop this. Now, this is all in 1973. I'm 10. So I had this vague recollection of it, but not much, you know. There were only three television stations and we would sit down at night and you watch the news and you'd hear about body counts out of Vietnam and Patty Hearst has been seen at this bank or this airline was hijacked. Uh, Munich had just happened. So it all kind of runs together in this very dangerous and volatile time of that is the, the American Indian movement taking over various um, uh, 
government sites. One of them is the, the Bureau of Indian Affairs building. I was going to say, they do, after Wounded Knee, don't they go to Washington and demand an audience with Nixon? And he says no. And then they're like, well, fine. Um, and they take over the, the building down the they street. Take over the building. You're right. They, and they then, he's, then he meets with them. They, they eventually have a meeting basically say, look, we won't prosecute you guys. If y'all will just leave pre- peacefully, um, you know, we'll talk to you. Um, and that's, and that's going to be about the time of wounded knee. And that's all part of the trail of broken treaties. Um, I, I, you know, I, I really didn't know a whole lot about it. You don't learn about the American Indians in school, uh, particularly if you're in school in the South and you hear trail of tears and you really don't even get a good story about that. But those are the things that this, packet is telling me. And ultimately what will happen to create U.S., the United States versus Leonard Peltier is that as part of the FBI's counterintelligence program, COINTELPRO, started by uh, during the Hoover administration, the FBI has an organization with inside the agency that runs counterintelligence and disrupts groups that they claim to be subversive. Martin Luther King was targeted by that. Um, um, you know, the, the Malcolm uh, X. Max was targeted. Black Panthers were targeted. Student, uh, you know, nonviolent groups were targeted as part of that because Hoover and those guys just thought they are, they are not falling into line. They're protesting. Oh, they were, weren't, they, weren't they counter surveilling the president himself? Yeah, that's right. Right. Everybody so was, I, everyone was targeted. By the this. word that kept coming to my mind, and I'm sorry to keep interrupting you, but no, I, no, please. this is the word that kept, as you were telling me this story yesterday, before we did this, um, the word that kept coming to my mind was audacity. But I kept circling back to this, that what they ended up doing in the case of U.S. versus Peltier really wasn't that audacious on the scale that they had been audacious in the past. It's horrendous. It's unbelievable. It's, I'll call it un-American. You don't have to. But uh, on the scale of things that they were used to doing, no big deal. We called it Tuesday. Yeah, this was standard operating procedure for them. And and part of what they were doing, there were were mineral rights at the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation that had some value to them. This is in South Dakota. Okay. It's a, it's a and uh, uh, Lakota uh, reservation in South Dakota, Pine Ridge. Um, so there was there were traditional Indians up there, and there was a movement back to get to get to get back to tradition, um, and to uh, to uh, protest the breaking of treaties, land, and the FBI was was. Ending and giving intelligence and ammunition to another group of Indians who called themselves the Goon Squad, the the Guardians <laughs> of the Oglala Nation. Right. I, I, which came first, the Goon Squad or the or the uh, the claim of an acronym? <laughs> Hard. All right. Say. So let's get let's because we're going to hear Goon Squad again. So let's make sure the, the it goes goon, through on the recording. It's the Guardians the of the old. It's the Oglala, Guardians of the Oglala, Oglala Nation, which is one of the tribes or one of the sects of the tribe on this reservation in South Dakota. Correct. So they're Lakota. Okay. We also call them Sioux. Right. So um, w- there's there's rival factions on this 
on this reservation. Right. One one of them is progr- one of them is traditional and they're they're going back to their roots and everything else and the other is being essentially funded and sponsored by the FBI. The FBI, correct. During the it's a, there's a little whitey bulger to this too because there's the, a lot of whitey bulger. There's a lighty whitey bulger. During this two or three year period, I think about a two year period, there are 60 murders. Uh, murders of AIM members, American Indian movement members, or people sympathetic to the American Indian movement in this area, in and around Pine Ridge Reservation. That is, those are the murders. Which has, the, a po- which has a percentage of the population is a staggering number. Unbelievable. Like, like, this, like, this is, like the, the blood in the streets level of, of violence in this, in this rather sparsely populated, low population area. Right. This thing becomes like, you know, uh, we're talking about gunfight at the OK Corral, but constantly there were just shootings and the and the goons are assaulting and murdering AIM members, people sympathetic to AIM, and no one is investigating. Nobody. One of the things that had happened was that because this happens, well, I may be skipping ahead, but but the um, there are those that say that this had to do with the federal government's desire to keep a portion of the, to take back essentially a portion of the reservation because of uranium. And that what the FBI and the government had basically done was found an Indian willing to do that and then put him in a position of power to, to do it. Correct. Then basically turned a blind eye to anything he wanted to do. This is the Whitey Bulger element to it. Like, as long as he was going to do the one big thing they wanted him to do, they were going to tolerate all these other things that that he did. Well, not just yeah, not just tolerate, support it. So yeah, because you know. because there were there were this this aim, this American Indian movement thing had had gotten to the point where it was disruptive. They're giving them intelligence. They're supplying them with ammunition. Yeah, that's pretty bad. It's bad. It is bad. So it has also from a handful of F. Oh, you're breaking up. Don't do that now. Plus agents in the. Okay. Hold on. You, you, you dropped out for a second. We had just finished. You're, you're breaking up. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. Uh, They have gone from. Ah, I can hear you, but we may need to we may need to step back just a second. You were saying that are you there? I'm still here. Okay. Let me see. Can you hear me? Move a little bit. Are you? I can hear you. Yeah. Okay. You, I think I dropped you. Yeah, sorry about that. Let me see what I can do. Can you, I think I've got you back. Yeah, I hear you. Okay, so okay. so that I can splice this nice and clean. Basically, the the because the American Indian movement had been, I'll say, troublesome in the eyes of the FBI, and maybe because of this uranium thing that the other parts of the government wanted for, or for whatever other reason, the FBI had basically picked their man 
put him in, put him in charge, funded him, helped him get himself elected. Um, and what was his name? His name was Dick Wilson. And he had a, he had a curious and, and, and colored, uh, a colorful past. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so he was an unlikely, um, tribal chief, but nonetheless with enough money, um, he got himself elected chief of this place. Um, and set about to suppress, disrupt, and make life hard for his political enemies on the reservation using the FBI's money, ammunition, and um, intelligence. Correct. And so that's what leads to this very dangerous and hostile atmosphere that caused the, the natives, the traditional natives on the reservation, to ask for, seek out, and ask for help from the American Indian movement to come help protect them. And so in June of 1975, the American Indian movement has come to the reservation and they have set up a little makeshift camp on the Jumping Bull compound. Um, There's a a family that lives up there um, and they are allowing them to use their land and they've set up some tents and shelters for them to stay. And they're taking care of the women and children, protecting them. They are armed. Um, and everybody, everybody is armed. armed. Yeah. Not just the AIM members. Everybody in this area is armed. The goons are armed, you know, private militia are armed. And the goon squad included not just native Americans or Indians, but also local, uh, Caucasians. Correct. Who had an interest. Yeah. Uh, Construction interest is some, 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 there are those who allege that those guys hoped to get contracts or whatever on the, on the, on the reservation. Right. So So they they were willing to pitch in and help put down the troublesome Indians. Right. And everybody knows this place is a powder powder keg. Now on June 26th, there are two agents named Williams and Kohler. They're young FBI agents who've been brought in from Denver because they're building up the FBI BIA presence in the area. And they've brought these guys in from Denver. A short time before this June 26, there's a, there's a young Indian named Jimmy Eagle. Jimmy Eagle is, is drinking with his friends and a couple of Caucasian ranch hands one night. They're getting drunk. They end up getting in a fight, and Jimmy Eagle steals the boots of one of the other ranch hands. And so a warrant is issued for his arrest. Now, that warrant is sent over, for whatever reason, to the FBI. Now, FBI does have jurisdiction for larceny um, that would rise to the federal level, uh, but these cowboy boots didn't meet that. Nevertheless, Kohler and Williams, who are in unmarked cars and civilian clothes, not just suits and ties, where you might think this person may be a federal agent, they're dressed as locals. Now, there's one Uh, eyewitness who said he saw them perhaps wearing moccasins. They look to be, appear to be uh, goons. They radio in that they have spotted a red pickup truck fitting the description of Jimmy Eagle and that they've got a warrant they're going to serve and they've been looking for Jimmy Eagle. Um, Is that what they were doing? I don't know, but actually have a warrant. And the idea that they were driving onto the Pine Ridge Reservation so that they could arrest Jimmy Eagle for this cowboy boot theft 
seems hard to believe to me. But nevertheless, it's, it's, there they are. With everything going on, 60-something deaths, murders, um, the FBI sending two agents out from Denver who had been temporarily stationed nearby to solve the missing boot uh, <laughs> mystery seems convenient. You know, what are they doing? It's right. I don't know. It doesn't make any sense to me. Um, but, the, and there are no recordings apparently at that time, rather than recording radio transmissions, they're transcribed. And so someone's there taking notes and it's, it's clear that they, they are following this red pickup truck. It's Jimmy Eagle. They're going to bring him in. and they they're, can, they're definitely out there looking for someone. They're looking for something. And as, as one of their supervisors said later, they were in violation of protocol uh, to go and do that. Now, you know, is he throwing them under the bus years later for what's about to happen? I, I don't know. I find it hard to believe that they would do that without somebody giving them the directive to go, let's go on to the reservation, but they go on to the reservation. Nevertheless, they're in unmarked cars. They're in plain clothes. The pickup truck appears to have stopped and a firefight begins. Now up on the top of this hill, up at jumping bull compound is a guy named Rabadou, uh, a guy named Butler and Leonard tier. They are, they are up at jumping, jumping bound compound. They hear the shooting begin. They hear the shots. They start getting. Now, let me, let me, let me interrupt you for a second. Uh Everything that you're telling us right now, this is entirely, mostly, or, or only partially from the, let's do a second to just get your, your, um, to kind of vet your, the source of your information over two years time. How many hours do you think you've spent? investigating, researching, looking into this? I, I went back and looked at my time. I am pushing a million dollars worth of in this case. Okay. So hundreds upon hundreds of hours. And the sources of your information of these things include trial transcripts, exhibits, documents that have been released under federal Freedom of Information Act requests, things that have been declassified or seen for the first time only decades later. Correct. Okay. So um, it's a, it's a, the story you're telling us now is, is not just, it's not some advocate um, like version of the events. I mean, I know you're an advocate, you, you become an advocate, but. Well, I become like, one because, of, because, and I will tell you why I do that in a, in a minute, but it's, it's, it's because of that. I'm, sickened by what our federal government does as well. You should be. I just, at the, I just want to make people understand that what you're telling us right now is not you just repeating the, the, the most favorable story that's been told to you. You've <laughs> you, upon your reputation, <laughs> you've Correct. vetted and investigated this thing and synthesized the facts right. from credible sources. I have been over it and over it. Uh, the only time where I'm speculating with you is when I said we were speculating. Why or did they, motive? What were they doing? What was right? Okay, doing? yeah. But as far as like what happened next, what happened next? All that stuff is um, well documented. Okay, so we got to the point where the agents have driven up onto this private property called the Jumping Bull Ranch, and uh, and shooting starts, 
and up on the hill are Leonard Peltier and two of his fellow American Indian movement uh, members whose names are Robidoux and Butler. Okay, so a shooting the shooting starts. The shooting starts, and initially, um, according to Leonard, he he hears some initial shots and he thinks it's a a, a boy that had been shooting um, off the property earlier that he had told to stop because it was dangerous. There are kids around, and he thought, well, what the heck? This kid's at it again. But then the shooting cranks up. And this turns into a firefight. Um, Butler, Robidoux, uh, Peltier up at the Jumping Bull Ranch, um, some distance away, fire back at the guys at the bottom who are firing at them. Now, well, and I'm going to go. I'm going to. I'm going to go over later and all at once the FBI's synthesized uh, version of this and let you respond to that. But it's at, at, is it clear? Is, should it have been clear or was it in fact clear to the Indians on the jumping bull who these two Caucasians were who had just rolled up in two different cars when this shooting is going on? No, it's impossible to know who they are. They haven't identified themselves. You put this in the context of the goon squad these guys being dressed the way they are, all appearances are that these are going squad guys. Yeah, what they're that the, one of the vehicles, Kohler's vehicle, is a Chevy, uh, common Chevy of the day. It's not right. marked as police. It's not marked as FBI. It's not marked as bureau, or or police or law enforcement in any way. It's a it's a civilian car from, right. from the outside looking in. Right. There's no way to tell, and these guys have got weapons. They're firing. Um, Whoever is in the red pickup truck uh, is firing back at them, and Indians up on the hill at Jumping Bull are firing. It's a firefight, and there are a lot of rounds. At some point, Kohler and Williams are hit, and they've been during this time radioing in back to to, uh, the station that someone needs to get there quickly. They need help. And within a short period of time, there are a hundred agents or so, some decked out in SWAT gear. Again, now this is motive. How did they get there so quickly? How did you mobilize that number of people to get there and surround this place? Yeah, well, according, I'll just drop this. According to the FBI's official version of this, there were 12 resident agent um, special agents uh, assigned um to the um to the area so maybe 12 of them are all fbi guys nearby if all the rest were who knows local law enforcement whatever so well i think we there were bia agents because apparently there will be kohler and williams will be killed as will an indian named joe stutz and the indications are that joe stutz was killed by a bia agent okay um, who was later. But the uh, point is they were able to get a massive number of, of people to respond to this rather quickly. In a, in a very short order. Um, goons, law enforcement, they were there. But Kohler and Williams are killed. <clears throat> it is, there. there's probably more evidence that they were killed, uh, shot at close range. There's some evidence to the contrary, but, but 
all indications are that they were killed at close range. As these agents, as the, as the law enforcement is pulling up to provide support, at least two of them um, later say, we passed a red pickup truck leaving the compound or leaving the reservation as we were coming on. Now, I, I question, what do you do? You know, they've gone on to the ranch. Yeah, they have information that this Jim, what's Jimmy, what's his name? Eagle. Is Jimmy his Eagle is in a red, last seen in a red truck. They're chasing him all over the reservation for a while. And they get information the day before that he's in a red truck. Right. Okay. And you're going, these in a, the guys are in a shootout. You know, they, they're chasing this red pickup truck. You're coming to their aid. You pass a red pickup truck leaving. Nobody turned around to go after the red pickup truck. Um, and, but for the next three weeks or so, they will search red pickup trucks, right? They know they're looking for a red pickup truck. But this, the firefight happens. Eventually, um, now Kohler and Williams are dead. The place is surrounded. And I'll, I'll shorten this story a little bit. Um, in spite of the, in spite of jumping the jumping bull ranch being uh, surrounded, ten to fifteen AIM members and sympathizers escape the the uh, the, the the perimeter. The they perimeter. get out. They get out, including Leonard Peltier. Peltier, Butler, Rabadou. Uh, a woman named Anna Mae Aquash. We, we may have to do another show just to talk about Anna Mae Aquash. Um, and what the people that the people that ultimate, I mean, Peltier makes it away from the scene. He makes it away from the scene. Peltier eventually um, escapes to Canada. He does not trust that this system is going to protect him and give him a fair trial. He takes off to Canada. Rabadou and Butler are picked up and they are brought back to stand trial. Now they need indictments. Initially, Jimmy Eagle was also indicted. They dropped the indictment against Jimmy, Jimmy Eagle. Now the the robbery warrant is ostensibly what they were out to do was serve a robbery warrant on Jimmy Eagle. They wind up in this firefight, and then Jimmy Eagle gets indicted with Peltier and the other two for the murder of the two agents. Correct. And Eagle's uh, indictment for the murder is ultimately dismissed. Correct. Okay. That's right. And they're going to, and they're going to focus on Rabadou and Butler and Peltier when they can get him back. So he's, he's holed up in Canada. Um, and they, they go ahead and put Rabadou and Butler on trial. Well, so but, but to get the indictments too, they need, they, they've got to put on their evidence Right. To get the, At the grand jury in, the, in front of the grand jury. And part of their evidence involves uh, eyewitness testimony from uh, three teenagers. Um, one of them being a, a kid named Norman Brown and his two buddies who were there that day. And they tested but because the jumping bull was home to women, children, and it wasn't like it was some compound of hardened. No, that's uh, right. Ha- hardened warrior men. Uh, it was it was a bunch of families. This was their home, right? These were families living up there. And uh, the three kids give testimony that they saw Rabadou, Butler, and Peltier heading down the hill. Didn't see them actually fire the shots, but they saw them heading in that direction. It's it's towards the agents' cars. Towards the agents. It's pretty damn good evidence that they were involved in this. Um, 
turns out then then Rabideau and Butler are put on trial in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Now why? Okay. So now the why why Cedar Rapids? Well, the defendants wanted to move it because they felt that in that area of South Dakota, they were not going to get a fair trial. So where would they, absent somebody asking to move it, which apparently did happen, where would they have been tried? Uh, I believe they would have been tried in in Sioux Falls. Okay. Um, But the defendants asked to have it moved so they can get a fair trial. Um, And it ends up in Iowa, uh, a place that is not particularly Indian friendly at that time. But the the judge allows in evidence of what became known as the reign of terror, what we were talking about with the goon squad and the FBI and BIA involvement in creating this atmosphere of terror in the area. And they use that as part of their self-defense defense that we because didn't know their, their, their theory, their theory is that Robidoux and Butler basically go to trial and say, we didn't know who these guys shooting at us were. So we shot back and it's a terrible thing that they happen to be FBI agents, but we didn't know who they were and we weren't trying to murder FBI agents. That's right. And, and the look- judge in Cedar in Cedar Rapids allows this background of the reign of terror and the goon squad to be introduced, to put in context, their Correct. claim of self-defense. Correct. Okay. The other interesting thing that happens is the three boys are put on the stand to tell the story they told to the grand jury. And this time, unlike in the grand jury, this time they swear on the pipe, right? So a pipe is part of their religion. It's their version of swearing on the Bible. And this now I'm getting from Norman Brown, but I've also read it in the transcripts. I'm getting the the why, his motivation from Norman himself. He's in his 60s now. But the transcripts let you know that what happened is that while the boys are on the stand, they uh, recant this testimony. Of the the three men going down towards the cars? Right. They recant that testimony because they didn't see it and say, the only reason we gave this testimony is because we were threatened. And Norman Brown told me that he was taken to a BIA shed, kind of a little trailer like you might have at a construction site for the supervisors and uh, was roughed up. He had a, he had a piece of paper that said uh, I'm represented by counsel. He knew he'd be picked up at some point and ask questions. I'm represented by counsel. Here's my lawyer. Here's his number. He gave it to him. He said, they took it. They laughed at him. They threw it in the trash and then they threw him in a chair. And one of the agents put his foot between Norman's legs and leaned his knee into Norman's throat and just started leaning into him with his weight, letting Norman know, that he was either going to tell them what they wanted or he would spend the rest of his life in prison. And I mean, I don't know who that agent was and obviously I wasn't in the room, but one can imagine that with two of his fellow agents having been uh, killed in this shootout days, weeks, months before um, he was interested in solving this crime, so to speak. Well, they were interested in getting a conviction, right? They, they thought at that point they knew who committed the crime. They had Butler, Rabadou, and, and Peltier. Their, their motivation now is they wanted a conviction on these guys, and they needed the, these boys to tell this story. Because no one else, no one else said who went down to the cars, which is where the close-range uh, wounds came from. Right, right. Um, 
And so they were threatening people into giving them the testimony that they wanted. While on the stand, Brown says, and the others say, they forced us to say this. We never saw that. Um, and so with that testimony uh, and the FBI's misconduct leading up to getting their testimony for Rabadou and Butler, the judge letting in the testimony about the reign of terror and explaining why they were in fear and why they were shooting back at these guys, these two are acquitted based on self-defense. That leaves the FBI and the U.S. attorney with only one defendant left, and he's in Canada. And Canada won't send him back because they have no evidence to support an extradition. Uh, I've seen an internal memo from the FBI that says, we, instructing them to use the full resources of the United States government to convict Leonard Peltier. Not find out who did this, uh, you know, convict this man because someone is going to go down and apparently any Indian will do. Um, we realize that they, they know internally that the FBI has threatened and intimidated witnesses to testify the way they want them to testify. As Norman Brown told me that they would remind him as he went into the grand jury room and as he took the stand in the federal court in Rabadou's trial, reminded him what he was supposed to say, not tell the truth, reminded him, now remember, here's what you saw and this is what you need to say. Fortunately, he didn't do it, but they need, they need Peltier back. Government, Canadian government won't send him back. So they come up with an eyewitness. Now they've got their eyewitness, a woman named Myrtle Porbear. Myrtle Porbear. And this, everything that's happened so far is bad. This part, bad. It, I'm just going to say this. Even the FBI's version of this part of the story is ridiculous. <laughs> well, apparently, here's here's what happens. Myrtle Porbear is visited by uh, what the U.S. Attorney's Office describes as her FBI controllers. That's how they're described. Um, and Myrtle gives them an affidavit that says, Leonard Peltier is my boyfriend. I was there that day, and I saw him murder these two agents. They take that to the Canadian court. Canadian court says, well, Mr. Peltier, they've got the evidence. We're sending you back. Turns out Myrtle Porbear never met Leonard Peltier. Obviously wasn't his boyfriend. She didn't know who he was and wasn't there that day. She was at her sister's house. And similar affidavit to the FBI in another case. This wasn't the first time she had been the girlfriend suspect and seen him do it. The FBI has used her before for this. So she's been, she's been more than one person's girlfriend when they wanted to either extradite or prosecute someone. That's correct. Uh, right. <laughs> and Myrtle says later, the re, once it's discovered, because the whole thing just falls apart. The well, let me, let, let me, let me, I said I was going to do this later, but be, let me, let me read. This is the, I want to read just briefly the FBI's official version of the, of the poor bear, of Myrtle Poor Bear's role in this case. Are you ready for this? Poor Bear surfaced. I'm reading from the FBI's website, by the way. Poor Bear surfaced as a possible witness during the investigation. As a result, she gave three sworn affidavits. In the first affidavit, she stated she was not an eyewitness to the murders, but that Peltier had told her he had committed the murders. 
In her second affidavit, she claimed she was an eyewitness and provided more detail concerning the incident. In the third affidavit, she provided still more detail. Poor Bear's second and third affidavits were used in Peltier's extradition from Canada to extradite a showing of probable cause as the legal standard that is required. Peltier's extradition was based on evidence other than Poor Bear's affidavits. But <laughs> after Peltier's extradition from Canada, subsequent interviews of Poor Bear by the government established that she was incompetent to testify at trial. As a result, Poor Bear was never called to testify at trial, and therefore, her information had nothing whatsoever to do with Peltier's conviction. <laughs> that is the FBI's explanation for why, how they got Myrtle Poor Bear's affidavit to give to the Canadians to get Peltier extradited, and why she did not testify as an eyewitness to the murders at the trial, because by the time they got to trial, poor Mrs. Poor Bear had deteriorated so much mentally that she was incompetent to testify. That's the FBI's official version. Right. Competent, Pick it up there. Yeah, competent to give this affidavit. Now, the U.S. Attorney's Office, when the Canadians come back and realize they've been lied to, they want explanations. The explanation comes from Holtman, who's the U.S. Attorney at the time, that says, we don't know anything about it. That was her FBI controllers. That's the phrase he used. Her FBI controllers did that. We're as shocked as anybody. But <laughs> shocked, I, I tell you, you're you're right. winning, sir. <laughs> notes that I have seen <laughs> demonstrate that Holtman was one of the drafters. Right, this the, the, he was a drafter and of this document. And the during Leonard's trial, his lawyers want to put Myrtle Poor Bear on the stand to do what had been done in, in the Robidoux Butler trial, which is impeach a witness with their own testimony, yeah, demonstrate that this is the, the FBI and U S attorney have been intimidating and threatening these witnesses. Okay. Um, the court says one, we're not letting per mortal per poor bear on the stand because she's incompetent. So she couldn't testify about those things. She's not competent to testify. And two, the FBI is not on trial here, sir. Right. Now wait, now wait, now wait, now wait, there's an important other thing that happened here. I think we might've missed it or skipped it at the trial. The second, the, the trial of Peltier does not happen in Cedar Rapids. No, that's right. We did miss that. Okay. So the US attorney's office wasn't happy with what happened in the last trial and didn't like the decisions made by, by the judge. judge. So they went to get themselves another judge and the case has moved to Fargo at the request, uh, Fargo, North Dakota, at the request of the government, not the defendant. And there are notes in the FBI, they're still trickling out. I was getting FOIA documents from this 1977 trial uh, just within the last two weeks. We're still getting documents from the government. On, How many the times do you have to ask the government to just give you what they used, what they had, what they, right. like, hey, you would think this would be like two sentences. Hey. Dear government, um, I'm representing Leonard Peltier, and I'd like all the documents you have um, that were involved in the investigation prosecution um, of Leonard Peltier. Can you do that for me, please? Um, that's been going on for three decades. Yeah. Here and we two weeks ago, you got more. Two weeks ago, within the, within the last month, two weeks ago, I got more. Two weeks before that, I got more. That had and never, that had not been produced previously. Never been produced, and they're still holding documents. 
They and, and now some of them they withheld under the claim of national security interest. National security. I'm not sure what national security, uh, you know, events they are they are uh, <laughs> protecting on the pine. Do they have to tell you that? Do they say, "Wait, well, look, there's a national security interest. Why we can't give you these memos or whatever, no. and it is related to whatever?" No. Or do they just say no? They just say no, and then you oh, can okay. go fight it in court. Uh, but you know, but Mr. it's kind of hard to do that if you don't know what you're asking, what they're withholding, or what they're what you're asking for. Thousands of documents have not been turned over, but but um, one of the things that was in that document, uh, now now I've forgotten why, <laughs> the the FOIA request. Um, we were talking about the transfer to uh, North Dakota. Oh, oh oh yeah, sorry. So so the interesting thing about that is that there are notes that were turned over that show the FBI and the U.S. attorney visited with the judge in Fargo about this case before the case was transferred to him. So it's not ex parte, but we're going to talk to the judge. (laughs) But only because they timed it that way. Yeah, right. And now we're going to go talk to the judge about this case. And oh, coincidence of coincidence, this judge is going to get this case. Now, Now, Judge McManus, who had it, in the, the Iowa case, the Robidoux Butler said he does not know why this was taken from him. There was no explanation. It was just moved. And they got themselves a better judge. Curiously, the FBI's official version of this does not indicate who asked for the trial to be in uh, Fargo or how it got there. It simply says that the government asked for and received a sequestered jury, a a gag order for lawyers, and a pretrial ruling that the FBI could not be placed on trial unless the information offered related to the evidence or witnesses in the case. So they basically decided to change their, pick a different judge um, who they had talked to before they got the trial to him, and then he started ruling in their favor. But you know, interestingly, the way you just said that, that's not true either. Because well, let, okay, well, let me let let me read the this is again from the FBI's website, the official version of the FBI of the what they call the reservation murders. Here's what it says to address problems that impacted the Cedar Rapids trial, which is an interesting way to phrase it to address problems that <laughs> impacted the Cedar Rapids trial. The government asked for and received a sequestered jury, a gag order for lawyers and a pretrial ruling that the FBI could not be placed on trial unless the information offered related to the evidence or witnesses in the case. So, so uh, they, they skip over how they wound up in Fargo. Well, the only problem they had with the other trial was that they had a judge who was making evidentiary rulings that were fair. Let's get it all in. <laughs> but But the other piece, too, is, you know, unless it relates to witness testimony, what the judge in Fargo did, because Brown and his two friends, teenagers, were going to testify, but the judge wouldn't let the defense cross-examine them on the threatened uh, and intimidation by the FBI because he excluded that part of their testimony. They now testify that we were there, we saw them there, we don't know what happened after that because Peltier instructs them to get the women and children back. And so they're no longer around. This sounds like that's a third version of the story a, from these guys. It's a third version. And so now because they've stopped Brown and the two other kids from saying anything after they were instructed by Peltier to leave, 
they wouldn't allow the defense to cross-examine them on prior stories and their and their grand jury testimony mm, because okay. it doesn't matter that they threatened you because they because uh, the prosecution carefully said, avoided the problem. Yeah, so we're not going to let you say it. And so you All know right. the judge doesn't let it in. You just go, come on. Now let let's cover this. Let's cover this a little bit. Um, they sequestered the jury, unlike in Cedar Rapids, and it. Your your observation, as as you explained to me yesterday, I think, was that that they sort of did so in a way that that created the the created or at least permitted the jury to think that they were in some danger from the American Indian uh, movement. Right, and so this is through FBI documents as well. They they reported back that they had information. It was a this is a classic tactic as part of COINTELPRO that you would give information and, and sometimes put it out to the public, but in this case to the court of, well, we have credible information that someone is in the AIM movement is going to try and harm the jury. Well, there is no credit, such credible information, but now you've put it out there. Now the jury, knowing why they're sequestered, is in fear for their lives because of AIM. And now here you've got Leonard Peltier, a member of AIM, that we've got to decide, did he do this thing that the government Did says, he do this heinous, dangerous, violent yeah. thing? Or and why are we locked up in a hotel surrounded by FBI agents to protect us from his friends? Right, right. So <laughs> okay. there you go. But, but the other interesting thing that will happen, and, and this comes as I'm reading the transcript, did not know this has happened, but I'm, I'm early into it. Day two, <clears throat> someone shows up at the courthouse. I mean, all of this stuff, it's like a its like a movie. You throw it all into the script and you can't believe this is all happening. In yeah, movie. because at some point you're like, no, no, that that's a ridiculous plot twist. Right. But let me give you yet another plot twist on day two. <laughs> and this is this is this part's directly from the transcript. This is reading the transcript. And I come across it as I'm, I'm just starting to read. I'm in day two and I'm at the end of day two and three women show up. Uh, at the courthouse and say, look, we know one of your jurors. She works with us. And she told us during the process uh, of selecting a jury that she was really prejudiced against Indians, doesn't care for Indians. And we thought that this was so important, we wouldn't be able to live with ourselves if we didn't come down to the courthouse and let the court know, you've got this biased juror. And they, and they wrote it on a piece of paper. They had it notarized. The three women signed it, gave it to the judge. It was at the end of the day, and the judge says, okay, well, let's get these three in here, and independently, uh, we are going to question them about this. And it's all in the record. I'm reading it. Uh, each one of them gets on the stand, tells essentially the same story. They're almost identical, but not so identical that it's contrived. Um, that they're in a break and this juror comes up and says, Hey, look, I'm being I'm part of the jury pool for this case uh, of this Indian who's accused of killing these uh, or who did, who killed these FBI agents. You know, I really, I'm just prejudiced against Indians. And then apparently she said something very similar to that later in the day to them. And they came down to the courthouse. They tell that story to the judge. I'm thinking, well, okay, this juror's got to be gone. The judge then says, well, let's call the juror in and see what she has to say. And so literally I can tell you the whole exchange in about three minutes. 
the jurors brought in, the three women are, are allowed to leave. The jurors brought in. The judge says, we brought you in here. Ms. Clock was her name. We brought you in here because I want you to read this statement and, and would like for you to respond. And so the juror reads the statement, and I'm expecting to read that she says, no, they misunderstood me. I'd never say such a thing. But that's not what she says. What she says is, yep, I said that. Uh, but, you know, I told you on day one, I could set aside any prejudice I have, and I can be fair. <laughs> Judge says, okay, anybody else have any questions? I kid you not. That is, that's what you get out of the judge. Anybody else? Leonard's lawyers say, well, you know, you know how important this case is, right? You can't be prejudiced, right? And she goes, yeah. And then his lawyers go, okay, well, that's good enough for us. Ms. Clock, thank you. We'll see you tomorrow. And now does, okay, you're, you, you were a federal judge at, at that moment in time, even if the defendant's lawyers, for whatever reason, are not bent out of shape by this. At that moment in time, does the federal judge overseeing this jury trial have an independent obligation to say, ma'am, you're excused. Yep. You should, yep. Was, thank you. Thank you for telling us the truth. Yep. You are relieved of your duty and we will seat the alternate juror. Right. There is no okay. other reasonable response to that. She's got to be gone. And instead, I just gave you the entire exchange. Although one later, one of the, one of Leonard's lawyers says, well, judge, you know, if, if we use an alternate, then that only leaves us one alternate. And if that person, we lose another juror, then we're going to have a mistrial. <laughs> and I'm thinking, yes, that's the second best thing that can happen to you in this case. Acquittal is your best option, but a mistrial and make them try it again is your next best option. What are you jokers thinking? Right. But irrespective of that, the judge has an obligation it's, it's, you know, there are a few things that you're doing up there, making sure that the process is fair is really what it is. And that's and what this woman just said. I don't like Indians. Not a one of them. Yeah. Right. And now you put on top of that. No, oh, by the way, uh, we're going to tell you in a couple of days that they're going to try to kill you. Um, you're okay with that, I guess. Right. It was, <laughs> it was just unbelievable to me, but she stays on the jury and, and ultimately votes. To now, go- okay. So one of the other, insane uh, plot twists here involves the gun that the FBI says is the murder weapon. So you've lost Myrtle poor bear. They've lost the evidence of, from the three teenage boys. Right. Myrtle poor bear. She's gone. So there's no, there's nobody that says he confessed the three boys or that I saw him do it or that right. was there. And I uh, saw whatever her version was, she's not right. there to say any of it. The three boys are not permitted to say, and or not asked to say that they saw Peltier and the two other men walk down towards the truck because the FBI's theory in this whole thing is that the agents were, were assassinated essentially that they were executed at close range, that it wasn't the gunfight. The gunfight was at distance that, that somebody or some combination of people walked up to him and basically shot them both in the head and killed and executed them. Right. Okay. So this, the boys telling the, the, the FBI and a jury in another uh, or, or whoever they told the boys saying that put three men and only three men in close proximity to the agents ever. Cool. They were the, that was the only that was the only evidence that put 
Peltier close enough to the agents physically to deliver what the FBI said were the execution style shots. Right. So they need some evidence. What's going to put him down there closer? Because we've lost the three boys testimony and we don't have Myrtle Poor Bear anymore. How do we get him in the area? And because the problem, the factual problem is there were, there were who knows how many people up on top of the hill shooting in the direction of the agents. About 40. Yeah, they've got to they've got to put a gun that they've got to put a gun in Peltier's hands. And, and it's helpful Peltier if they can put it. It's helpful yeah. if they can put the actual murder weapon in his hands. Right. They need Peltier to be a few feet away down there with a murder weapon in his hands. And they have no evidence of that. So they now need to create some. So the story changes. Now Kohler and Williams for the next trial won't be chasing Jimmy Eagle in a red pickup truck. They'll be after a red and white van that fits the description of a van that Leonard Peltier owned. And their explanation is, well, Kohler and Williams were a couple of city boys from Denver. They didn't know the difference between a pickup truck and a van or the difference, you know, they were, they said red, but gosh, it was red and white. The description just changes. Now, interestingly, the FBI's official version of this event says plainly that there's no reason for the, there's no, that the FBI does not have any reason to think that the agents knew that Peltier was there. Well, not then. Right. Okay. No, no, right. They don't, but, so they're still saying it. So that allows them to say, we're still chasing Jimmy Eagle. Okay. But Jimmy Eagle's in a red and white van. All right. Not now a truck we were, or whatever. Yeah. Now, and that, and that they were mistaken about it being Jimmy Eagle. It's really Leonard Peltier. who <laughs> must be in his own van. Now, now, never mind. You got the boys saying he's up on the hill. He's in this van, but we need a little something more than that. And they've, they've, investigated the scene multiple times. They've gotten all the shell casings. They've got every evidence there. That's how I know that there was no actual warrant. When they say they were going to serve the warrant on Jimmy Eagle, there was no warrant would have been in the car. So they've investigated the scene, right? They've done their CSI stuff um, multiple times, and there's no evidence to link Leonard Peltier until they do the fourth or fifth, sweep of the place and they find a shell casing in the trunk and it's the shell casing from an AR-15 and they say only person who had an AR-15 was Leonard Peltier this is his gun and we're going to run a ballistics test on this shell casing it's new no one ever saw it before it just happened to show up in the trunk we now see it now the the uh, ballistics expert says on the stand I, I did a shell casing test the best test to have done would have been a firing pin test, but the AR-15 was destroyed in a fire, and so I couldn't do a firing pin test, but a shell casing test shows me that it's this AR-15, and that's his testimony on the stand. In, later, in Fargo. In Fargo. Against Peltier. Correct. Okay. Um, years later, the FBI, and they're trickling out of documents as part of the Freedom of Information Act request, let slip through a teletype indicating that there was in fact a firing pin test done on this weapon and it eliminates Leonard Peltier as the shooter. Now their entire case, and I've read the closing, 
I've read the trial transcript. And, and Lynn Crooks, the lead prosecutor, who was the assistant U.S. attorney, admits this. Their entire case against Leonard rises and falls on the ballistics test. It's all about the ballistics test. It's what he argued to them. You know, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, there's only one person with an AR-15. We've done a shell casing test. It shows it was this weapon. Um, it's found right here at the scene in the trunk of the car. It can only be Leonard Peltier. He's the only one available. And, and right, that's got uh, a lot of, um, um, you know, it, that is a com- pretty compelling argument. Except that it's not true. And the agent knows it's not true. The FBI knows it's not true. The U.S. Attorney's Office knows it's not true. And no one gets that evidence, right? It's, it's exculpatory evidence that's required under the Constitution in the case of the United States. So before they put Peltier on trial in Fargo, they were aware that they had evidence that the gun that they recovered, and incidentally, they, they recover the AR-15 that they say is the murder weapon much later in Kansas from a burned out car that some other uh, Indians who may or were present at the um, at the Jumping Bull Ranch were driving in, I think, Wyoming. Yeah. So this right. this this AR is not recovered from Peltier. It's recovered from other Indians That's weeks right. or weeks or months later, uh, and it's burned up when they find it. Correct. Okay. Right, and it's not true. Their theory had been there was only one AR-15. There weren't. There were multiple AR-15s. Well, the agents, the, the the even the FBI admits the agents had, um, also had at least one AR-15 that did fire shots, or one shot, maybe two. I forget which what what it was. But they, they, they the FBI's official version of this is that. They they ruled out they took they they knew which ammo and casings had come from the FBI. They set those aside, and this one casing from the trunk they conclusively link uh, to the AR that they recover later in the in the possession of other Indians. Right, and they say that all these witnesses put uh, are these witnesses say that only Peltier had an AR at the scene. And therefore, if you connect all those dots and believe it all, that obviously Peltier was the man who fired the execution-style shots. Right. The problem is that not introduced at trial and not offered to the defense during the trial or before it is an FBI memo that says we were able to conclusively exclude it. Correct. Okay. Right. That's, oh, a, yeah. that, it, that's a small problem. Um, yeah. Oh, right? yeah, there's that. I, I will I will direct listeners to the FBI's official version of this. You can find it if you just know how to do the Google thing. Um, this they they write in the FBI's official version. They write I don't know a couple hundred words, eight or ten paragraphs about this shell casing issue. So without even trying to decide who to believe here, um, you can tell um, because. The FBI's official version of this event has a section called Defense Allegations and Rebuttals. I'm not sure I've ever seen such a thing, but maybe it happens a lot. But the FBI has gone to the trouble of saying, yeah, we've heard all these these problems with our case, and here's our explanation for them, most or all of which wasn't offered at trial. But they write about 10 paragraphs from the, uh, on on this one shell casing. Would you be surprised to learn... Kevin, that they do not include this memo, this teletype that says that one test excluded the AR. 
No, I would not be surprised by that. I mean, if they will intentionally withhold it, knowing they have a constitutional obligation to provide it at trial, it does not surprise me that in, uh, you know, their few hundred word explanation years later that they... I'll, I'll read one sentence from the FBI's official report, um, and I misspoke. The, the AR-15 was later recovered in Kansas. Here's Here's the yeah. one sentence that I think comes the closest to admitting anything like that. They go on and on and on about a smooth firing pin and why they couldn't test it and how they how different batches of evidence were delivered to them. I mean, there's a long explanation. You can go read it. But here's what they wrote, a part of it. They said, as a result of this trickling in of information and different batches of evidence coming in and everything, as a result, the October 1975 laboratory report could have been misinterpreted to exclude all 223 shell casings from matching the AR-15 recovered in Kansas. In other words, if you read the that may be that they're that may be the teletype they're talking about. But basically what they've said is, well, we we given what we've now told you, we understand how you could have made that mistake to think that we had excluded it. I mean, this thing is it's if if there wasn't a man sitting in a in a maximum security prison in Coleman, Florida for the last 44 years, this would be comical. This would be shot down as a movie script. uh, uh, Somebody would have said, we need to get rid of about six or eight of these ridiculous plot twists. That's too many. Right. This is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Yeah. But but, so, okay. So long and short of it is a document that you've seen from the FBI reports that a test was done before the trial that whether it was right or wrong or misinterpreted was not turned over to the defense. And that report, according to what you've seen positively excludes this rifle for as being the murder weapon. And even the FBI admits it's possible it could have been misinterpreted to suggest that. Right. But the big picture, the big problem here constitutionally is the defense was not given that in preparation for trial. Right. Right. Which I mean, that kind of thing is like, that'd be hard to say that was harmless error or somehow not a problem that would require at least a retrial. Right. Except here's how they get around it. So now there is right now we get to the, now we get to the shifting theory, right? So we get the, so, so a habeas petition is filed, right? There are constitutional violations. The court needs to correct this. And the government realizes we've got big troubles right? We've now, we have zero evidence now that we've been discovered <laughs> having, having hidden. Hold, this. hold on one, hold on one second. Let me, let me just recap where we are by the time. <laughs> Le, okay. So at, at the legally procedurally posturally where we are with Leonard at this moment in time is that he's been tried and convicted and sentenced to two life sentences consecutive, but to get there, here's what we got. We got the FBI going and getting three in, in tr- facially contradictory affidavits from Myrtle Poor Bear just to get Peltier extradited from Canada, only two of which they present to the Canadian authorities. The one that says he wasn't there, uh, he didn't do it, uh, or she didn't see it, uh, they don't give them that. But they, but, so they use two of the three Myrtle Poor Bear affidavits to get him extradited in the first place. But conveniently, by the time they get him back here, Myrtle Poor Bear's mental condition has so far deteriorated that she is not even competent to testify at the trial. That's one, right? Right. Two, they have allegedly um, 
basically roughed up teenage boys to to give them testimony that Leonard Peltier and these and Rabidou and the other gentlemen were the ones who walked down to the car, which puts one of those three men as the execution style shooter. Those boys later recant and refuse to testify to that or testify differently later. And then in this in 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 Cedar Rapids, when the two co-defendants are tried at the at the trial of Peltier, they don't even ask him about that. They just have those boys say, well, Peltier was on the premises when this went down. So they just, they dodge this, this problem of the roughing up of the witnesses and therefore get the judge to, okay. So. Right. And because of the judge's ruling, now you cannot use. You can't do the reign of terror stuff. Right. No reign of terror. And you can't say that you guys were roughed up by the FBI and gave a false story before that doesn't get in now. Right. Now, all of this is happening in front of a judge that they have picked, talked to, and then delivered the case to, right? They, they have picked the, the judge that they want to try this case in front of in Fargo and talk to him before he has the case and then deliver the case to him. And they're not surprised, I guess, to learn that he's going to rule favorably for them on different things. Uh, what else have we got? We got the, the Brady violation with the failure to turn over the exculpatory evidence, right? Right. Um, right. And, and did I miss something? What else? What else? Uh, well, you've got the shifting theories. I mean, okay. The, now, the, yeah, right. So the, the truck pickup truck versus the red and white van. Okay. Issue. Right. Uh, right. Okay. Um, and you've got the, the shell casing, which is part of the Brady, the shell casing that mysteriously either appeared. is or isn't from the murder weapon. <laughs> right. And that just appeared. Okay. And now now also, he's convicted them. and it's time to do the next thing which is uh, raise these constitutional violations in what's called a habeas petition. All right. And so now the government is, has lost everything, right? They have no evidence now to put Leonard there. And so they changed their theory. And their theory now becomes, okay, scrap all of that. We know we argued that he executed these guys, but forget that. There was an instruction on aiding and abetting in the, in the jury instructions. And, you know, we did mention that. And so his conviction ought to stand on an aiding and abetting theory. To which so they've the, gone, they've gone from, he had the gun in his hand and pulled the trigger to he was there and did enough to suffer the consequences of being convicted just the same. Correct. And we're going to, and he'll be the only one convicted of this in spite of the fact that there were 40 people up there and there's no evidence that he hit the broad side of a barn with anything or that he even knew who the hell they were. They were just two guys who came onto the property. But that was not the, that was not the theory at the trial of the two nope. co-defendants. And that was not the theory at his trial. Correct. Okay. So now they've got an aiding and abetting and the judge, judge Heaney writes the opinion and says the conduct of the FBI is reprehensible. But can we say that had the Brady violation not happened and this other evidence gotten in, that they probably would have come to a different decision? Under that standard of review, we can't say that. And so we're going to let it stand. And so, but the, but the court also asked him, asked Lynn Crooks, but had you tried this as an aiding and abetting, this would have been a very different sentencing, wouldn't it? He wouldn't have gotten two life sentences, and Lynn Crook said, "I agree with that." What would he have, if he had been tried as 
you were there, you had a gun, you were shooting in the direction of the agents and they wound up dead, but we can't say that your bullets did it. What might he have been convicted of and sentenced to? You know, what would his sentence have been under this judge? He was probably going to get a harsh sentence, but it's probably, it's probably nothing more than 20 years, which is a hell of a lot of time. Which, but well, he it, served 40-something at this point, right? Or served 44 at this point. He's, he'll be 76 next so, week. So legally, I mean, I guess, I guess Leonard Peltier could have been convicted of the murder of these agents uh, by a theory other than you were the guy who pulled the trigger. But the sentence would have been different. The sentence would have been different. Yeah. And, and you know, had the other evidence gotten in, would he have, you know, who who was he aiding and abetting? Well, I think if, I think, just, just thinking of it like off the cuff, here's the thing. Um, the exculpatory evidence that, that, that ruled out the AR-15 that was recovered later from other Indians in another state might have deterred the FBI and prosecution from suggesting that he's the one who walked down there and shot these men in the head with that gun. Right. So, I mean, it's not enough to simply say, well, might it have made a difference to the jury? It probably would have made a difference to the prosecution. Right. Like it, they, they, pro- they might not have had the gall to go with that evidence, with, to go with that theory in the first place. Well, and the theory falls apart if it's an aiding and abetting because, right? Who did you aid and abet? Was there even your only other co-defendants were Robidoux and Butler, and they were acquitted based on self-defense as being up the hill. So Leonard has to have done something to have aided and abetted a, a murder. And there's no evidence, at least in the in the prior trial, that a murder was committed. There was a killing, but we don't know that there was a murder if you, because of the self-defense. So who did? And Lynn Crooks, the prosecutor, was asked, "Who did he aid and abet?" And Crooks says, "I don't know. Maybe himself." Now, <laughs> I'm not look, sure that that's a theory that survives. Thirty years ago, when you and I were sitting in Criminal One, you cannot aid and abet yourself. So you know, who, who were you aiding and abetting? There's nobody because there was no murder. There was a killing in a shootout that never should have taken place, but for the FBI's reign of terror and, and the, and the atmosphere that had been created. And one of the judges says the FBI must take responsibility for what happened there that day. And that's judge Heaney who, before he died, uh, supported clemency for Leonard. And the U.S. attorney who took over on post-conviction motions and the habeas, a a guy named Reynolds, who's still alive, is advocating for clemency. And the U.S. attorney says this case is unusually troublesome. I guess he has troublesome cases, but this was unusually troublesome and that we cut corners. The U.S. attorney cut corners. All right. If ever there were a euphemism. (laughs) Bullying witnesses, making up evidence, uh, withholding exculpatory evidence, forum shopping, judge poisoning, scaring juries. Um, uh, I, I don't know what uh, I've left something out, I'm sure. Um, if that's described as cutting corners, I'd like to know what that gentleman would describe as outright um, uh, wrongdoing, like yeah. intentional malfeasance by the right. prosecution. Right. 
I mean, these, this thing, constitutional violations just compound and pile up on each other. One of the things that we didn't talk about, and there's so many things that you could, there are other details that I've left out because of time, but one of the things that Myrtle Porbear says is, and I mentioned this woman, Anime Aquash. Anime Aquash was with them that day. She's a native from Canada, and she was with part of AIM. Anime's body will show up sometime later. She's dead, and an autopsy is performed. The FBI had been uh, hounding Anime about wanting to question her about what happened there that day. She was there. She refuses to talk to them. Anime ends up dead. And her body is taken to, uh, to Scotts Bluff, Nebraska for an autopsy. And the doctor does the autopsy. But in the notes, there are FBI agents present. Unusual, because all they have is a dead body found who appears to have died of exposure out in the wilderness of South Dakota. But there are FBI agents there. Why? There are reports that when her body was found, that dozens of FBI agents were at the scene. Why? They have been questioning her. They're at the autopsy. They don't recognize her. Now, the doctor reports two FBI agents are here, but nobody can identify her body. So they chop off her hands and send it to the FBI lab for fingerprint testing. Comes back. No, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> they detach hands from the corpse they detach hands from the corpse he says i can't her face is too decomposed her hands are too decomposed for me to do my own fingerprint testing but we're going to chop okay. off the hands and we're going to mail them back to uh to the fbi lab now uh, as an aside I, I asked some natives why why this would happen it's so weird and apparently from people in the area said it's something that they would do because under native culture for a body to be detached like that would, would be um, kind of, I'm trying to think of the best way to say that It, it would be very unsettling in order to intern a body and send it back to the great spirit. It needs to be intact. And so by chopping off the hands, you've, you're insulting the, the natives. And it's not the only time it happened, but um, they do it. There's another great book out there called Sandra's Hands about a 15-year-old who's raped and murdered and sodomized by a BIA agent, and they chop off her hands um, and then send them back to the school because they don't know who else to send them to, so they put them in a box and they mail them back to her family. But they chopped off Anime's hands because they don't know who she is. Now, these two FBI agents have just been, right, they've been uh, interrogating her. They know exactly who she is. But the, the, the autopsy, it's ruled exposure, that she was either drunk or taking drugs. She passed out and died from exposure. Now, her family gets this, and they say, this doesn't make any sense. She didn't drink or do drugs, and she knew the area. Why is her body, why would she get out there and die of exposure? So they bring in their own, uh, corner, and he does an autopsy, and he goes, well, it may have been exposure, or it may have been the bullet to the back of her head. Oh, good Lord. They missed it, apparently. She was shot. She was executed in the back of her head. Um, but they take these pictures. Now, the FBI has the pictures, and they take them, and they show them to Myrtle Porbear, as Myrtle's trying to remember what may have happened that day at Pine Ridge. 
and they threaten to take her 13-year-old from her, and they say to her, it would be a real shame if this happened to you, showing her pictures of an autopsy where their hands have been removed. This is FBI conduct. Unbelievable. So Myrtle Porbear says, I'm telling them whatever the hell they want me to say. You know, Just, look at yeah. uh, how many affidavits do you need and what do they need to say? Uh, right. You need a fourth one. I'll give it to you. It's this level of conduct. And so uh, there was another habeas petition that was filed in the 10th circuit, which would have been the circuit where the murders were uh, occurred. The killings occurred. Um, the 10th circuit said, we can't take this. This isn't our jurisdiction. You were tried in Fargo. That's the eighth circuit. But they, they opined on the conduct and say, there's no question that they intimidated witnesses and evidence. This conduct by the FBI is reprehensible. So an opinion by a, a federal judge. Yeah. Um, three judge panel. Yeah. Three judge panel, knowing the importance of what they were saying, takes yeah. the FBI agents to task for the behavior in the Peltier investigation. Right. They the investigation and prosecution of this case. And yet he sits. Yeah. And yet Leonard sits. And the only thing left to do is clemency. And that's, and that's where we are. And that's what I've been trying to do uh, for, you know, at least the last nine months. Um, We're, we're working with the white house and trying to get this case, the review that it deserves. Um, No, no presidents in the past have been willing to call out the FBI for this misconduct. And it's become such, such a standard procedure that this is what they do. Not all FBI agents and such a, it's a small, it's a small group, but when an agency of the government does this, um, you've got to call it out and you've got to, you've got to name it and you've got to fix it or at least. Yeah. Now let's, I mean, let's don't make light of this. Um, Williams and Kohler were killed. Um, um, maybe executed, um, and that's that's not okay either. Um, but that, as heinous as what may have ha- have happened that led to their deaths was, um, none of that excuses the way that Peltier has been prosecuted. That's right. And what initially got to me was. The, the constitutional violations, right? I served this country in the Navy. I served this country as a, in private practice. I served this country uh, when I worked for the legislative branch and I served this country on the judiciary. And to see them, the U.S. attorney and the FBI, just uh, reject all of that and do allow the means to justify the end. And that's the thing that's so troubling here, right? Is that there are, there are two agents who are, I don't know. Let's just say they were, they were honorable men. Let's assume that they were, and that they were just doing a difficult job. They were caught between rival factions. Let's give them every benefit of the doubt, right? They're, They're stuck. They're, they're up there in South Dakota trying to, let's say, keep the peace between, between rival factions that are uh, engaged in a violent struggle over power on the reservation. Let's just give them the benefit of the doubt and say that that's what was happening here. <laughs> Let's just say that at worst, Kohler and Williams made some procedural 
protocol mistakes and wound up where they were when they were and that they were in fact unjustifiably shot and killed by angry Indians. Let's just say that all of that is true. Let's just, for the purpose of this conversation, let's just further assume that Peltier did it, did it intentionally and did it with malice and, and executed these agents. Let's just say that that's true. I'm not, I'm not agreeing that that's true, but let's just say that it is. You still can't go off the rails if you're the rest of the agents and the rest of the, the U S attorney's office and do anything that you want to do just to make sure that Peltier never, never sees uh, another day of freedom. You can't do that. You, you can't do that. And that's where I started, but it's not where I've ended because initially I thought, you know, I'm thinking exactly what you said, that it's the process, that it's the constitution, but, and I didn't look so much at guilt or innocence, but now that I've spent so much time with this, not only is there not any evidence that what you described happened, I don't believe that it did. All, all indications are that whoever was in the red pickup truck is, is who pulled the trigger. And I don't know who that is, and they don't know who it is. Lynn Crooks says, we don't know who killed the agents or what participation. And, just, and Crooks, is, Crooks is the, was the head prosecutor at the trial. Um, and he, he says, says that now. He says that now. He's been saying it for decades. And he said when confronted by Steve Croft of 60 Minutes uh, back in the 90s about Myrtle Poor Bear, he said, well, I don't know that that's true, but so what if it is? It doesn't hurt my conscience. One doesn't bother my conscience one bit. And that's the problem. So, okay. So, bother his conscience. Yeah. So let me, all right. So let me set it up this way then. Is it, would it be fair to say that having been immersed in this for two years, would it be fair to say that the best case scenario, the best explanation, the least troublesome explanation here is that two honorable FBI agents wound up dead at the hands of Indians and that in order to make sure that somebody got punished for that, the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office uh, got ran a rogue operation in the prosecution and made sure that they got at least one person in prison. That's the, that's the best explanation, right? The best explanation. But at the end of the day, the worst explanation is they were running a rogue operation to begin with. Uh, they wound up getting in a shootout that, uh, that they, uh, uh, that they couldn't have been surprised to wind up in. And then they did all that stuff to cover it up. Right. Right. And he, both of them are plausible, but let's go with the simple explanation is that Kohler and Williams mistakenly or naively or, you know, for whatever reason, drove up into a powder keg of uh, an area of the Pine Ridge Reservation and a shootout started and they got killed along with Joe Stutz. I mean, we can't, don't forget about Joe. He's dead too. Nobody ever investigated that. Who shot Joe? Did, you know, was well, that a according to it, let me ask you this. Is this true? According to the FBI's official version, the FBI agents managed to uh, fire only five rounds from the four guns that they had with them. No. That is the official, that is the FBI's official version as we sit on the internet, August 7th, well, 2020. 
Um, several places, the FBI's uh, story is that the the agents managed to fire only five rounds uh, from the from th- all of the guns that they had with them. Well, that's that's ridiculous, and that's inconsistent with all of the testimony of the eyewitnesses. Right? <laughs> they had they had revolvers. They had long guns, right? They, they had rifles in the trunk. They got all these out. There was this firefight went back and forth as they're radioing in, you know, somebody get over here and help us. They're shooting. And, and the witness testimony of the folks who were there, uh, talk. Now who fired what? Okay. Well, let me read from you. This is the FBI's official version of this, of the actual firefight. Here's what it says as to the agent's weapons. Examination of the agent's weapons showed that one round had been fired from Kohler's handgun, two rounds from Agent Williams' handgun, one round from Kohler's 308 rifle, and one round from Kohler's shotgun. The agent's weapons fired a total of five rounds during this incident. That's inconsistent with witness testimony, but I'm not sure at that distance, who's he firing the shotgun at? Yeah, that... I'm, and how does Kohler go from a rifle from a 308 to a shotgun? But right, right. It, uh, did, it just it Kohler does. shoots a handgun. According to the FBI, Kohler shoots a handgun two times, a 308 once, and a shotgun once. And Williams fires uh, two rounds from his handgun, and then that's it. That's that's all it, that they is, are and, able to fire. And that's inconsistent with the eyewitness testimony. Well, I, you know what I I. I don't want to take the time on the recording to do this, but as I read this, I thought that I read in the same position paper that they had, that there were AR 15 rounds on the ground from the agents, but that's not, that's not consistent with what I just read. Right. I mean, right. They were, they were making it up so fast and furiously. They, they can't keep up with their, it just, that's inconsistent. Right? Who's firing the AR-15? Is it theirs? Well, where's that in that story? Well, why would you fire a shotgun? Who, who, who well, fire- spe- okay, so the other part of the, the, the FBI's official version of this is that, um, is that uh, the FBI, the two agents were in two different cars, and they followed this vehicle onto mm-hmm. the Jumping Bull uh, property, right. and that... Um, they radioed and they, they were on the radio uh, and said that they had spotted a red and white vehicle and they were going to stop it, that the two of them followed it onto the jumping bull property. Um, and that, um, and that when they did uh, Leonard Peltier's red and white suburban entered the area of the murders first, followed shortly by Williams and Kohler's FBI vehicles, they claim Peltier's vehicle stopped approximately 250 yards in front of the agent's cars, at which point Peltier, Charles, and Stunts got out and started firing at the agents. Now, I'm not sure why anyone would take a shotgun and sh- try, attempt to shoot back at people who were 250 yards away, but that is what the FBI says happened. Right. And it's not what they say happened, though, in the Ribidoux Butler trial. Right. In Ribido Butler, it's not a red and white suburban. It's a red pickup truck. My, I, I've got a four year old. If I call a suburban a pickup truck, she's going to correct me. 
<laughs> she knows the difference. Well, they get around. The, I say they get around. They, the FBI's version of this is that after all the investigation was said and done, it turned out that besides the two agents' cars, there was only one vehicle in the area that was operable. In other words, we know we were right because there was only one vehicle in the entire area besides ours that could even drive around. Except for the red pickup truck that drove off of the property as they were coming on. That is not mentioned in the FBI's official version yeah, as it, it stands on the internet today. Right. There was testimony from, from two agents that they passed a red pickup truck. And in the FOIA documents that we've got, it shows for the next three weeks, they are stopping and searching red pickup trucks. Why? No point in that. There was a, if, if there was only one vehicle, you're chasing a red and white Suburban and you've got it. Why are you stopping red pickup trucks? Because it's a red pickup truck. That's what the guys called in. So let me ask you this, who there is a, there, there's a name dropped in the, um, in the FBI's report that says that, um, uh, there's a radio transmission. So the first radio transmission is at 1150 AM on June 26, 1975 from either Kohler or Williams. And they basically say, Hey, um, we're following this car. We're going to stop it. Uh, apparently they thought it was that the Jimmy Eagle, um, that they were looking for. But, and but in, I'll stop you there, Dana, because they know Jimmy Eagle has a red pickup truck. Why would you think Jimmy Eagle is now in a red and white suburban? So, um, uh, they, the FBI says that um, in the next radio transmission overheard, which was only a few seconds later, Williams stated that the vehicle they were pursuing had stopped. The occupants had exited the vehicle and it appeared they were preparing to fire at the agents. The next line is these facts are corroborated by the testimony of Michael Anderson. Is it, does Michael Anderson figure into this some way other than in this FBI version? No. Hmm. That he's the one who says that that Peltier's red and white suburban entered the area, um, and that it's at that point that Peltier, Charles, and Stunts get out and start shooting at the agents from two hundred and fifty yards away. That comes from Michael Anderson. I don't know how Michael Anderson can say that. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, you know, <clears throat> there's, I, I'm, a, I, as I, th I think I said this earlier, I'm, I'm a quite cynical person. I really am. I, I, I've been doing what we do a long time and, um, I've, it takes, it takes a toll on you. Um, and you and I talked about this for about an hour yesterday. And then I went and started doing some other reading and looking into this. And I came across the FBI's version, uh, on the internet and, um, and as I was reading it, and I have to admit that perhaps I was a little bit jaded by the version that you had given me, but even as I read the FBI's version, I couldn't help but think, wow, this has been written in a way that suggests that what they're saying is far less important than what they're not saying. It has been written in a way to uh, deliberately evade uh, certain things that um, that Kevin had told me about. The, the trial and the, the circumstance. I mean, for example, the omission of the, how we wound up in, in Fargo. Um, uh, and um, so 
um, there, there's, there's the, the FBI's version of this starts out with this. Um, unknown to agents Williams and Kohler, Leonard Peltier was present on Pine Ridge. Peltier had an outstanding warrant for his arrest, which had been issued by the Eastern District of Wisconsin for unlawful flight to avoid prosecution for attempted murder of an off-duty police officer. That's true. So I guess I guess their theory was that Peltier was just not going to go to jail. So when he saw two guys that might be goons or or law enforcement of any kind, he just decided to start blasting. Is that sort of the what they're suggesting? Here? Well, here's why they needed that theory, because otherwise you don't get into evidence that you've been uh, accused of a crime. Right. It's it's character evidence. It has nothing to do with this one. So you got to come up with a theory. And the theory becomes, well, he knows he's wanted. And so he's just got to kill anybody so he doesn't have to go back. The judge let that evidence in. He has tried. The judge allowed at the Fargo evidence, at the Fargo trial, the judge allowed the FBI to explain that the theory of why Peltier would jump out of a truck and start shooting at someone who might be officers or who he knew to be officers, either one, was because he knew if he didn't kill them, they were going to take him to jail. Correct. Right. And that and the judge lets it in on that theory. Otherwise, there's no way in hell you can put it in. But he is he is then tried on that charge after the Fargo trial. He is tried for this attempted murder in Wisconsin and acquitted because that was a setup. And the so girl, he was acquitted of that. So that the, yeah. the, the, nonetheless, I mean, he was so it's true that he was wanted, but eventually that trial came up, came up with nothing. Right. Because the girlfriend, what happened was he gets into a fight in the diner with some either off duty or undercover police officers, and they accuse him of attempted murder. What happened was they go to, they, they recognized it. And there had been, there had been memos put out by the FBI to harass anyone. Peltier was specifically named of the AIM leadership. And that if we can keep them uh, tied up in court, they can't do things that bother us. Well, that and and according to um, some of the p- other people who've been investigating and following this Peltier story, um, after the wounded knee incident, um, they the federal government indicted something like 600 different people and basically crippled the American Indian movement by indicting 600 people into federal court. Right. And they and there's a memo, an internal FBI memo that tells you that's what they're going to do. So when he's in Wisconsin, there are police officers that recognize him and they goad him into a fight and then accuse him of attempted murder. During the trial, one of the officer's girlfriend was with them and she admits that was the plan. That's why they did this. One of the officers testified that he was out of work for three weeks because he had busted his hands up so badly beating Leonard Peltier that he couldn't go to work for three weeks. And then you say, so, right, that's not necessary unless you're out there just to, you know, kick the hell out of, out of an Indian. And then the girlfriend that's there says, look, he, he told me he recognized him and that here's what they were going to go do. So Leonard is acquitted of that, but the evidence gets in to the Fargo trial. Uh, Mike Anderson, by the way, is one of the boys that recanted his testimony. Oh, okay. All right. So Mike Anderson and Norman Brown are the three kids. Okay. So, so Anderson is one of the three boys that is uh, pressured 
uh, yeah. he, that later says he was pressured by the FBI to give these statements. Correct. Now he, he's dead. Anderson and, and Draper are now dead. Um, so, so all we're left with is their affidavits or transcripts. Right. And, and Norman Brown, who's alive, who, you know, was in it with them. The, the FBI report or version of this also goes to great lengths pretty much to say that although the agents had no idea that Peltier was there, Peltier was well aware that they were agents and that he had a warrant. Well, there's no, I don't know how he would know they were agents. Well, the FBI's version of this says that um, well, says that one of the ladies testified that everybody knew who the agents were. We knew who they were. We could tell. That's impossible. <laughs> You couldn't tell because there's also testimony uh, of of uh, Edgar Running Bear, who was there, who went in as a mediator for this thing, who said he walked by. The FBI asked him to check on those on the agents. Are they dead? Edgar went over there, checked on them, told them yes, they're dead, and he said I I was surprised that they were wearing moccasins and dressed like not like agents but like natives. They were dressed like Indians. Uh, and one of them, I don't know if both, but at least one of them was wearing moccasins. It's like, well, I mean, are you playing or are you meant to make people think that you were goons and not FBI agents? Uh, right. The whole thing just stinks. Um, and, and here we are, you know, in 2020 still talking about this blatant, misconduct. No one even uh, suggests anymore that they know who did it. They don't even even attempt to say that they have any idea. If Leonard was even involved, he was there. That's what they got. And that's what they admit to. So where do you go from here? There, I mean, it's not you saying it. It's not me saying it. It's, it's, it sounds like at least one three-panel jury, uh, one three panel of uh, judge, appellate court judges who have condemned the, the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office for the way they handled this. Um, well, so, too, because the, even the court that upheld the convictions on the habeas petition calls them out for their misconduct. So it's not you. It's not me. It's, it's other judges who were responsible for man for handling the appeals and the habeas and the habeas and the post convictions and everything. So even the FBI has to live with that, right? Like even the U S attorney's office has to live with mis- the, the, the branding of misconduct by the judges that, uh, that ultimately upheld Leonard Peltier's conviction and sentence. So what, um, what, where do you go from here? At this point, all of his appeals, habeas petitions, all that's all that's thoroughly exhausted, right? Well, right. That's right. Um, you know, when you say they have to live with it, I, they do, but they don't care, right? This is not about justice. This is about winning. Yeah, I mean, they're they're and this you see this a lot, right? That the, they're committed to the to the narrative, and they're never ever 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 going to say that our agents. Our brothers died uh, other than honorably and that uh, our efforts to vindicate their deaths were anything other than um, than by the book. Right. They're never going to say that. Right. They, right. They can't. It's, you know, Ramsey. It's Clark. institutionally impossible. Uh-huh. 
right. Ramsey Clark said it best. They've staked their reputation on this conviction and they cannot let it go. They can't admit that they did anything wrong. So and step one to is to that, admit, <laughs> right? right? Like step one. Right. Of the, of, admit of, you have a problem. Admit you have a problem. And I mean, this, you know, this is a, this is a, a case that is now 40 something, 40 something years old. Um, and yet it is remarkably relevant to the conversations and events that are happening in the streets today. And I'm not, I'm not defending people that are committing crimes in the streets. I'm just saying we're still having a conversation as a nation about the police being held to a standard that we can all accept. And that when the police do wrong, that they are, that there are consequences and that there's a reckoning. And yet, in a case shot through with these problems, they continue to insist that Leonard Peltier die in prison. Right. And, and that's the only way this ends for them is that he dies and they can move on and forget about it. But look, the, the, it, I signed on to the amicus brief. Again, will surprise you as much as me being in the Trump White House. I signed on to the amicus brief in support of General Flynn and his position that the charges uh, should be dropped. I did that not because I'm a General Flynn fan, um, but because I'm a, I'm a fan of the Constitution. And what they did to Leonard and what they've done to others and what they've done with respect to General Flynn is a pattern of conduct that the means justify the end and they get to decide what the end is. It's a holdover from Hoover, and it still happens. I'm not. It's, it's it's endemic and cultural. That's right. That's right. And and when the, those kind of institutions able to with impunity um, do this to the citizens that they are supposed to serve, you've got a real problem. And you've got to stop it. And at this point, the only way that it can be stopped, at least with respect to to Leonard Peltier, is for the president to step in and get involved and grant clemency and let him go home and, uh, you know, go up to the Turtle Mountain. He's a Chippewa uh, from North Dakota. Let him go back and spend the rest of his years, you know, living living on a piece of land up there painting. He's uh, a he's a 75 or 76 year old man at this yeah. point. He'll be 76 in, in September. He's got heart issues. He's got diabetes. He's got serious health problems. And now he, he has a, he has quite a, a following among the uh, Indian uh, population. Right. So, I mean, yeah. it, it's, it's, it seems like part of the dynamics here is not just that they're never going to, that the authorities are never going to say we did anything wrong. They're just not going to do that. But isn't part of the problem here also that they can't even be quiet and and just let whatever happens happens because if he ever leaves prison he's going to be received as a hero and they they don't want to see that happen either no right they don't but you know also we've got to not to turn this back into a native issue you know that we we also need our relationship and build a better relationship with with the native community this does that Right, they, he will be seen as a hero. He's he is a hero with them. He stood up for their traditional rights. 
Um, and it wasn't easy to do. And he's paid for his life. Now, yeah, I mean, you know, if the president were to were to release him now with with or without pardoning him or whatever, if the president just said, you've served enough time, go home. He served 45 years. Right. 44, 45 years. Yeah. Um, which, as you said earlier, is longer than he would have served if he'd been properly convicted of what the evidence m- m- could right. be construed to suggest that he did. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, but um, but the the evidence, the admissible, credible, untainted evidence, hmm. probably does not support a sentence of forty four years, or in this case, two times life. Right. Absolutely not. This this needs to end, and let him go home. Well. Is there anything else we need to we need to cover at right now? Because <laughs> right, we're we're three. I do want to. I can tell you now that I will follow up with you. And so if if as your pro, as you make progress, if you just need like five or ten minutes to tell us something, let me know. Yeah, I'll, I'll do that. I had a call that I was supposed to make an hour ago. So <laughs> all right, to, well, I need to go do that. But we'll catch up because there's right there's more to the story. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot of tentacles to this too. As it, I started it, looking at it just yesterday, yeah, there's yeah. There's all kinds of like like um, other rabbit holes that 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 are nearby this one. You know what? If you want to get into it, get a book called "In the Spirit of Crazy Horse" by Peter Matheson. Um, that read that. It's it's a great book, and it also goes back and tells you some of the history of AIM. If people are inclined to either find out more or pitch in and and do what they can do individually to for Leonard. Uh, where would you send them or what would you have them do? I would say if you want to learn more, there's a great podcast um, called Leonard. Um, that is is worth listening to. I think it's into about episode four. Um, that's great. The The book in the spirit of Crazy Horse is fantastic. Uh, follow Peltier HQ uh, on Twitter. And um, there's a petition that we started. Um, at freeleonardpeltier.com. Uh, go to any of those, or uh, you know, I'm on Twitter as Kevin H. Sharp. Um, you can always get a hold of me there. You'll see me tweeting about this um, daily. All right, Kevin, thank you All so right. much. When I called you to see if you do the podcast, I had no idea you'd gotten wrapped up in this incredible <laughs> and very, very, very disturbing story. So it, thank you for your time. Thank you. I appreciate it, Dana. All right. Thanks. Thanks. I will let you draw your own conclusions about that story. I will tell you mine. It is my conclusion that Leonard Peltier uh, did not receive a fair process. I think that Leonard Peltier being in prison for consecutive life sentences 40-something years later is an injustice. In what became known as the letter from a Birmingham jail, Martin Luther King wrote that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly, affects all indirectly. Or as my former mentor, Ernie Williams, told me one time, everybody loves justice until they get a little dose. I'll be following this story, and if there are any updates that need to be brought to your attention, I'll do that. Uh, If you like what I'm doing, click the subscribe, the like, recommend me to your friends. Um, You know, if you think you might be a good guest or no one, let me know. I'm easy to find. Thank you for listening. 
Until next time, this is Dana McClendon, and this is Ready for Trial.